Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here this morning. Being that it's Memorial Day weekend, we want to at least say thanks to those individuals and families who have literally surrendered not only their time but their lives in order for us to enjoy the freedoms that we have, and it's important for us to recognize it. I hope you were here to hear one of our chaplains from our Venture Church Network uh, sort of honor that this morning from Hawaii as we had a chance to uh, recognize him this morning. a couple other things I simply want to mention, uh, being that it's a holiday weekend like this, we don't do it every single holiday, but the major ones that we don't have a second hour, uh, we do that just because everyone's gone. So, um, so uh, primarily people who are staff and, and individuals who help us with those ministries are all kind of scattered to the winds, which is great. We're glad that people get away, a, a but it uh, makes second hour tricky, so we, being that it's Memorial Day weekend, and most of you have lots of plans. We will not have a second hour this week. And then finally, just want to pass on, I know the pictures are coming later, but to Grandpa and Grandma Willett, who just uh, received a new grandchild. Kind of been there and done that, and know it's a lot of fun uh, as grandparents. They just, uh, kids, these new little ones that, it, you know, I always, when our kids had theirs, it's kind of like there's a person in this thing. It's just, it's always an amazing thing. So it's fun to hear the new life that they get to enjoy, and I'm sure you'll get a chance, if you haven't already, to congratulate the Ellerings down the road. So it's uh, kind of a fun time. Mark chapter 7 is where we're at this morning, and uh, later on we're doing a baptism. That's why I'm choosing to preach first this morning. We have our kids coming up, and we have uh, Ashlyn Kimbrough, who's going to be baptized, so we thought it would be fun to put that after the message this morning. Matthew 7, verse 9 is where we're at, and if you have a Bible or want to follow along on the text up front, we invite you to do that. Jesus said to them, and this is to the Pharisees and the scribes, this is part of the larger narrative started in chapter 7, verse 1, and so we've broken this up, so I wouldn't normally do that, but I think there's enough here that, you know, you don't want me preaching for three hours, especially on Memorial Day weekend, so we broke it up a little bit so that we could take smaller bites. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, which literally means that which is given to God, then you will no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. I think I've mentioned it before, Will Mancini in his book Future Church identifies four different things that usually catch people's emotional commitment to a church. It really revolves around either a personality. Lots of people will go to a church because possibly of a particular preacher or a worship leader or a youth pastor, but sometimes their allegiance, their faithfulness to that is built around a personality. Uh, Some people, it's about a program. Uh, I have jokingly talked to uh, other churches and I said, if you got rid of a particular program, would you lose people? And they all went, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I said, well, if I was picking one in our church, I said, I could probably pick several, but if I picked and got rid of the Iwana program, we'd probably lose like dozens of families just like that. Even if we tried to replace it with something that was really close, 
uh, it's like Juana's been here longer than most of you have been alive. Uh, and so there's people that have a, an emotional affiliation that if you're doing Awana, then I'll be there. Uh, for other people, it's a people group. This is where my friends grew up. This is where we hung together all our life and went through junior high and high school and young adults and now we're adults and we're connected to the same people and so that becomes their affiliation. And finally, sometimes it's the place. Uh, it might be the aesthetics, it might be whatever. Um, we were daring enough without too much casualty to, for instance, we don't have pews anymore and sometimes people's affiliation is that's what they think church is connected to, is that that's what kind of their emotional connection. As we work through this, we discover that it's very easy for churches to develop their own culture. They all have a culture. They all have things that they have done since the time they existed. The danger with that is that lots of churches probably could have more traditions in it than Buckingham Palace that the danger that we face is that the, the traditions become sort of the litmus test of spirituality. And if we're gonna be a faithful church, we have to hang to these traditions, we can't change them, or we've ceased being the church that I grew up in or that I think is important. Well, Jesus had to deal with the same kind of stuff and we were dealing with that in Mark chapter seven, one through eight, and now we're gonna finish that off this week by talking about nine through 13. And I, I want to propose to you, there's four things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the issue of tradition over truth, what I, is what I'm going to call it. Uh, we're going to look at the idea of the indictment that Jesus brings upon that sense of tradition as opposed to the truth of God's word. And then he illustrates it in this passage. And then there's some insights that I think Jesus gives us in relationship to that. And I will try to help you sort of figure that out in terms of your own personal context of what this could look like. The first thing is the issues about tradition over truth. And it's amazing how this passage starts in the sense of when Jesus talks to these Pharisees and scribes, uh, he says to them, you have nicely set aside uh, the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. You might have a different English version. Uh, some of would word it in the sense of saying, you have done a great job of setting aside the commandment of God for your traditions. The word actually that's used in there is the word good. So it's kind of like a false compliment. Man, you guys, you Pharisees and scribes, you've done a masterful job of setting aside the commandment of God for your traditions. Obviously, it's not a compliment. And yet, I, uh, in my regional work, deal with churches who do, have done exactly that that they have clung so tightly to their traditions and their historical activities and events and the way they do things that they quite literally have undermined the word of God for their traditions, and it becomes a real battle. Uh, the applications that are, we struggle with uh, are varied. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's programs or personalities or other particular things, every church has a culture in which it's developed. It's not that it's wrong in and of itself. The danger is, is that that culture becomes sort of the defining litmus test for what spirituality is. And as we get older, we tend to cling more to those things that have nurtured us for many years. It doesn't mean any of those are wrong. When I grew up, Billy Graham's Just As I Am was the litmus test of evangelism. It didn't matter whether it was a crusade or a Sunday morning. If you didn't sing Just As I Am, then you weren't doing evangelism. You obviously didn't share the gospel. Well... I got news for you. That's not the only way to share the gospel or give an invitation. 
But that sort of became the way it was done because of all that Billy Graham had done in terms of his ministry. But as we begin to look at it, I've, I've discovered that churches do that. It, probably the one place you can look in a church to figure out where the traditions are are in the bylaws. Now, we don't hand those out every week so you can take a look at them. I'm guessing that most of you wouldn't care anyway. Um, you want to know that we are a community and that we've got some boundaries on how we're going to interact with one another, but I ran into one church this year that basically had in their bylaws uh, the opportunity for them to start a petition if they had an argument or a, a disagreement with what was going on and they could bring that to the church. What all they succeeded in doing is splitting the church and getting rid of their senior pastor, but that's kind of part of their tradition. And, and traditions often get written into the DNA of a church, whether it's bylaws or this is just the way we've always done it, is kind of the traditions that we do. Now let me mention, not every single tradition means that something's wrong. Uh, we talked last week that there are certain critical traditions like the gospel and the faithfulness to the word of God that are traditions that are critical. The scriptures talk about two ordinances, baptism, which we're gonna see here in a little bit, and the Lord's Supper that are critical uh, what happens in churches is they usually start fighting over how that is done rather than whether it's done. And so churches have their own bent. And individuals have their own bent on how that works. Uh, there is a quote that I want to put in front of you that may already be up there. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. When traditions and teachings and practices and events begin to dominate the nature of the church and how they do things, then there's a serious danger that it becomes a dead reality for a church. It, it, it made sense back when they did it. They were exercising what they might call best practices to deal with the issues that they're dealing with. But at some point, life changes. People change. Culture changes. It's always a bit... Uh, disconcerting to me when I walk into a church and it looks exactly the way it did back when they built it in 1960 or whatever. It's kind of like, boy, nothing changes here. Nothing has developed. Nothing has grown. There doesn't seem to be any fruitfulness. It's all about maintaining the past and what's happening. Having said that, I also want you to notice that when Jesus challenges the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, the issue here is not an option between your opinion and your opinion or the, the, what the, the community wants to do and the leaders want to do, the issue here is between the traditions of human beings and the commandment of God, or the word of God. And you'll notice that Jesus states it two different ways. You, for the sake of your traditions, have undermined or rejected the, the commandment of God, and then immediately follows that by saying, Moses said. Now, what that tells us is something really important, that the great revelation of God that he has given to humanity is we would talk about it as being in the transcripts of his word. But the way that that got done is that God spoke to individuals like Moses and what we have in the New Testament as the disciples and the, the apostles and prophets, and he revealed to them what we were then given by them through oral tradition and through written word what God wants us to know. And so I won't spend a long time here, even though you know this is probably the most dangerous part of the message because we could be here another two hours from now walking on this particular issue. 
But there are three things that are part of this. Even though the, the, the commandment or the, was given by Moses and it was referred to by the Jews as the law of Moses, that was not just Moses' opinion about what they're supposed to do. That was God revealing to Moses, here are my commands, here are my precepts, here are my ordinances, I, want, I don't want you messing with this, I want you to pass this along to the people of Israel and this is how God wants you to live. And so it's really critical that God took that process. That's what we call revelation. God reveals his truth to a human person like Moses, and that then becomes transmitted. And we have other passages like 1 Corinthians 2.10, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, which says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretations. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of a person but they were men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that is both the principle and the problem because we have all kinds of groups, religious groups out there that would claim that they speak on God's behalf and yet God, they, it's a human person that's communicating the information. I mean, we've seen this from cults to the Catholic Church, from Baptists, the charismatics, where people are making claims to speak on God's behalf, and yet that's the way God has chosen to reveal himself and reveal his word, but at the same time, there's always this question and danger that can we trust the human agency that he's given? Can we actually trust the person who's speaking on God's behalf? I mean, frankly, that's the problem with pastors and preaching and this kind of thing, is that the idea is, well, we hope that he's preaching the word. And we want to train our people to know, frankly, good Bible study principles so that they know that when someone like me is preaching that, that this does reflect what God's word is. Because we've got way too many people out there inventing their own truth, using God's word as the springboard, and then persuasively convincing people that my truth is truth that you need to follow. And that's where it gets both problematic and challenging. The other element is that the reason why God's word is more critical than my opinion is because of inspiration. I just read the passage in 2 Peter, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is also helpful. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, corre for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Obviously, it's man or woman. So the idea here is that this isn't just myth, this isn't just the invention of human ingenuity, this is God's word. And it's the thing that sets Christianity apart from really most any other groups, is the reality that we're not making up our own truth, this is God's word given to us. And because it's his revelation and we rely on the inspiration of God being faithful to protect that word, the illumination is another part of it is that when we read the scriptures, it's not just the ability to understand it, but it's the, 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 the ability to value that word and to welcome it and then make adjustments in my life so that becomes the, the thing that changes the way I live. That's the challenge of today's world, and it was the challenge of Jesus' world. The Pharisees and the scribes were sort of the guardians of the esoteric, mystical uh, knowledge that not only was connected to the law but also to just the wisdom of religion. And they sort of had the privilege of being able to say, we're the authorities in this, not you. So what we tell you is what you have to do. 
And yet, when we come to this particular text, we see Jesus takes tremendous issue with the Pharisees and scribes because even though God's law, the law of Moses, is sort of the foundation for their ideas, they've started to create their own religion by creating a whole bunch of truths and policies and practices that went beyond what God's word said. And Jesus, as we'll notice later, didn't have any friendly terms for them. He called them hypocrites. Now, the danger isn't just for religious leaders. The danger is for every individual sitting in a chair this morning and everybody who's watching online. It is very easy for us to use God's word to springboard our own truth rather than live by his truth. John Stott made this comment. Every church should be engaged in continuous self-reformation scrutinizing its traditions in the light of scripture and where necessary, modifying them. The indictment that Jesus has for the Pharisees and scribes would be the same indictment that he might have for some individuals who claim to be Christians today. Possibly for any of us at different times in our life where we develop convictions and ideas in our head that we go, boy, this has gotta be the right way to go. As I've mentioned to many of you, my dad was, ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver. It had to do with alcoholism. If you ask me about what do I think about alcoholism, I go, not a big fan. There's nothing, now I could easily start developing my own convictions and saying, you know, I've seen how much damage it does to my home and I've heard hordes of other families where it's done, we're not gonna drink alcohol if you're gonna be a good Christian but I'd be overstepping my boundaries. Because the scripture doesn't say don't drink alcohol, it says don't get drunk. Sometimes I'll default to our state troopers to say what do they think being drunk is and use that as the measuring slick instead of coming up to my own decisions on it. But the idea is, is it would be very easy for me to come up with a rule or a principle that would push that idea of don't be drunk to things that the Bible don't, doesn't really say. And then I use that to inflict it on other people, and believe me, you and I know that because of our own experience, good or bad, in terms of our own context, it's very easy for us to start passing judgment on people that don't fit my particular principle. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus, your dudes there, they're not washing their hands the way they ought to. Now, if you think that's stupid, just track the American church over the last two or three years and you'll see a lot of stuff going on that has split and divided churches and isolated people and created all kinds of condemnation based on personal convictions. And the springboard for all of them have come from this. And I do know what I'm talking to. I've talked to a lot of churches who went through a lot of stuff. And I still talk to a lot of churches who are going through a lot of stuff, whether it's what color the carpet should be and what they should paint the walls to how do we deal with CRT and redefinition of the family. And so as we begin to think about this whole process, I think of David Watson's comment. Christian work is constantly crippled by clinging to blessings and traditions of the past. God is not the God of yesterday, he is the God of today. Heaven forbid that we should go on playing religious games in one corner when the cloud and fire of God's presence has moved to the other. That's the constant challenge of churches. 
How is it that the God of the universe and the spirit of the living God is moving in our midst and what directions that he wants to go? And let's follow him. Now, I don't know anybody who wouldn't say, that's a great theological idea, until that movement might mean changing a particular program that's going like, well, wait a minute, we've done this like forever. You can't change that. And that's, that's kind of the traditions that we do. Doesn't mean even the tradition in and of itself is bad, but if it trumps how we follow Jesus, it might. And the greatest danger any of us face is that we start extrapolating our own truth based on our own convictions, based on our own experience that doesn't really reflect the word of God even though it springboards from the word of God. And so we face this constant, that's why we continue to study, that's why we continue to examine it. That's why we continue to look at God's truth and say, what is it really telling us? Is there things that we learn? Because I don't know anybody who I believe, if they're really being responsible, can stand up here and say, I've got the final word on what the final word is. Which is a bit oxymoronic. But there are some who do that. They basically set themselves up as the final authority. If you don't listen to me, go away. Or we'll discipline you or something. And it's always the challenge of finding principles in God's word. I think principles are marvelous ways to help us understand truth that was written in a different culture in a different time, and how does that make sense for the way I live now? But the danger with principles is that someone will find an idea and a principle, they'll extract it from that, and then they'll swing it around like a dead cat hitting every particular issue in the planet when it's not related to those things. And so the indictment is, really comes down to what's going to be the authority in our life. Is it really going to be God's word and the person of God himself and Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us? Is that our authority or are we going to make up our own? Now, before we self-justify, let's, let me make this statement. Every one of us have violated God's word at some point in some time, not in massive moral ways, but we look at God's word and goes, yeah, that's nice, but this is what I want to do. And we've done it. We've all done it. I've done it. You've done it. And if you want to challenge that, you and I, I'm happy to have a discussion with you after. Because that's the journey of life, is not that we're perfect and have it figured out. The issue is we understand our brokenness and we live with humility saying, my life is constantly in the process of learning what Jesus wants me to believe and setting aside what I believe currently if his belief is different than what I believe. If there's a rub there and I don't feel comfortable with this truth, then God needs to be the one that wins, not me. But usually out of our fear and anxiety and our insecurity, what we do is we often cling tighter to the things that we believe even when we know that it's wrong because we're terrified to let go of what we have believed for years because that means I'm not spiritual or that means maybe I haven't been as spiritual as I thought I was and I have to go through the embarrassment of meaning that, well, I haven't arrived as a Christian and maybe I have to change. Well, good for you, so does the rest of us. And so at the heart of this 
is what's going to be our authority. In our culture now, it's things like social ethics and public opinion that becomes the authority. It's things like cultural issues, like CRT has been the battleground of how do we make spiritual decisions as a church, and it's, it's Southern Baptists. They adopted critical race theory to help them try to deal with some of the ethnic prejudice and discrimination that was going on. I'm not quite as excited about that move as they seem to be, but, but that's the battle that we're in is that we both adopt and create things that we think will solve the problem, and the danger is, is the moment we move away from this and create our own paradigms, then we're saying, this isn't good enough. This isn't sufficient to help us give the wisdom how to deal with the issues of our day. And I'm gonna lay odds, and this is just me personally, that the problem isn't that the word of God is insufficient, the problem is, is our na- na- naivete that we don't understand it as fully as we should. The biggest authority structure in even many Christians' lives that you run into is how they feel, is their emotions. And unfortunately, the culture tends to shape our emotions a lot, whether we're willing to admit it or not. I think I've told you the story of a couple that was getting divorced back in Portland. They've been married for like 30 years. And when I sat down with them, I'd ask them some questions, and when we finally got down to having both couples in the room, The statement from her is, don't we deserve to be happy? And you know what my answer was? No. And she looked at me really funny and I said, look, if you're gonna go against what God's word says, you don't deserve to be happy at all if you claim to be a Christian. God is not a concierge who's here to simply make us happy. I'm willing even to default to the old saying, he wants to make us holy so that we honor him rather than whether we're happy or not. Those are not the same thing sometimes. And yet there's lots of Christians who've created their own Jesus in their own image to say, it's God's job to make me happy and and carefree and get rid of the conflicts and and the difficulties and the people in my life that are causing problems because it's more important for me to be happy than it is to be holy. Postmodernism, relativism, social justice stuff now tends to be the thing that overwhelms. Doesn't mean those issues aren't important to address, but if we don't address them through the gospel and through the scriptures, we're gonna be as vulnerable and in as much difficulty as the rest of the world. Does that mean it's easy? Of course not. That's why we actually encourage people to learn how to study their Bible. I'd be the last one to say, hey, whatever I say, just swallow it whole. Just do what I say. My thing is, learn how to study the Bible and let's talk about it. And then Jesus gives this illustration. Now why he picks this one, I don't know, but boy, I think he's going after somebody here. And he says, listen, here's an example of a commandment. Honor your father and mother, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And then he flips it around to another command that comes up in Exodus 21. So it's sort of the negative disobedience of this particular one. And it says, whoever reviles his father or mother shall surely die. Well, obviously, that wasn't said in America. Because we've created our own truth that's quite different. 
My wife, for those of you that don't know, is a professional teacher who teaches in one of our local schools. The, the, the people who run the school are the kids. Of course, the people who run families are the kids. That the kids get to do literally anything they want and nobody can touch them. Now, I can't even tell you where to begin with all the problems that that faces. But that literally, to me, has nothing to do with what biblical family ought to be. And we have to be careful, even as Christians, that we don't cave into all the cultural pressures that are saying, listen, kids rule. They wouldn't put it that way. It's all about caring for kids. But I don't know, I'm almost a little nervous, like 15, 20 years down the road, what kind of mess we're in because if we let the kids keep growing up to do what they're doing, I'm gonna move to Costa Rica, I think. <laughs> well, I could go back to Canada. Nah, maybe not, maybe not. But it's interesting that Jesus picks on this, and the way that the scribes and the Pharisees have got around, gotten around from this thing is what they call about this claim of Corban. It's really, a, the, the word Corban actually is board, borrowed from the Hebrew, but the idea means to be dedicated or something given to God. And so there's a couple of uh, interesting statements. This is one that I found out of Josephus. He's a new te- uh, early first century historian that wrote, we use a lot of his works in some of our studies. I'm just pulling this from the middle of a statement that includes this, so I won't build the context, but it says, such individuals also as dedicate themselves to God as a Corban, which donates what the Greeks call a gift. When they are desirous of being freed from this ministration or this, this commitment, uh, are to lay down money for their priests, 30 shekels if it is a woman and 50 if it was a man. <laughs> you know what my first thought was when I read that? Judas running back to the Pharisees and the scribes and 30, throwing his 30 pieces of silver back at them. I kind of went, wow, that's almost like an act of getting free from his dedication and commitment to be given to Jesus. I mean, the numbers are wrong. It was the numbers for the women, not the men, but I thought, well, he wasn't exactly being honest about his life anyway. It'll go on somewhere else and saying, among which he enumerated, or I'm sorry, the, the, the picture then becomes what does this look like in our world? I mean, we don't have Corbin. We don't go around quoting Corbin. Well, what do we do? Well, we often have traditions. Let me explain it two ways. I think I've mentioned my first church was in rural Alberta, and it was a village church. And when I got there, they had certain teachings and traditions that they had been doing for years. They had one gentleman who was kind of the patriarch who cared for the church. And when I got there, one of the things that they talked about, among others, is they said, one of the things you should know is that we don't baptize people here. I don't know if you, I'm bringing this up because we're doing a baptism this morning, and if you remember this, uh, I said, oh, really, why don't you baptize people? And their comment was simply this, well, Paul told us not to baptize people. And I went, really? And I knew exactly where this was going. And I said, well, would you mind showing this to me? Because I'm not aware of when Paul told us not to baptize people. So, of course, they went to 1 Corinthians 1, 
where Paul makes the statement, in I think it's verse 17, where he says this comment, he says, God didn't send me to baptize, he sent me to preach the gospel. And I said, well, why would you draw that conclusion from that statement? He says, well, what else would we conclude? I said, well, okay, if you back up and look at the context, which is an important principle of hermeneutics or interpreting the scriptures, I said, he does mention that he actually baptized people. So to say that Paul said he's not sent to baptize people and he actually did it means that's a conflict in my thinking. But I said the problem is is that the Corinthians were turning Paul and Peter and others and Cephas into heroes. Hey, they didn't care as much about being baptized, but hey, I got baptized by Paul. And I said they were taking baptism and pushing it to a level that wasn't biblical. So they were bragging about who baptized them and they weren't. So, and the reason Paul said, I explained to them, that, Paul, that God didn't send them to baptize is because baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism in and of itself doesn't save, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that saves people. And so we had the privilege that year of baptizing 19 people because they just realized that the tradition they had established wasn't biblical and they were willing to make the changes. But believe me, I've run into churches that would be absolutely unwilling to make those changes because this is what one particular person's conviction is and to admit that that's not right would be a death knell for their own spiritual walk, at least in their mind. And so I think it's kind of fun even mentioning that, that we've got one of our young people going to be baptized this morning in a couple minutes. And so the illustration of this tradition over truth, the Pharisees simply found a way not to obey God's command by using Corbin as an excuse. They found an ongoing way to avoid helping others, even family, because, oh, well, I've dedicated this to the Lord, I've, got my, you know, this, I've, I've put this into account that's supposed to be used for giving and, and for this project, and I'm going to help go feed my starving children. So I can't help you because... I've already dedicated all this stuff to Jesus, and so it would be wrong to take it away from Jesus and give it to you. That's what they're saying here. And Jesus stomps on that with both feet. And we have to be careful in our own personal lives that we don't start using spiritualized personal ideas or convictions as an excuse not to obey God's word. Now, part of this is precedented on the fact that you actually are trying to learn what God's word is. See, I know that we're kind of in an age and a phase in history where, not for everybody, but there's a lot of people who never pick up a Bible study tool and go through it because they don't want this sort of fake thing about filling in answers in, a, in an answer book. That doesn't do anything. But at the same time, we won't learn the principles that are needed so I can sit down with God's word and I can rummage around in its truth and grapple with it and struggle with it and, and ask the hard questions and investigate the cross-references and understand the terms and what the author actually meant when he read it. It's really hard to find people who will take the time to dig in like that, to say, here's what I'm learning that God is speaking to my heart about because I've taken personal responsibility to be in here. Statistics would say that biblical illiteracy is off the charts. 
And the reason for it is because, well, I don't need this. I just need to, I just want to feel the right thing to do. And so I'm hoping that God will just put an impression on my heart that tells me what I need to do, and then I'll do that. And I'm not necessarily against that as long as you take the time to go, is this what God's word actually tells me to do? And the problem with these traditions is that Jesus has already said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're pretenders. You show up to the synagogue every week and you sing praises and hymns and it's just fake. You're pretending to honor and worship me and you're living by your own dictates and your own teaching and your own rules. You really don't care about my word. You're just phonies. I feel like this church, I've had absolutely probably one of the best teams I've ever worked with. Staff, elders, others. This is one of the best teams of people that I've ever worked with in ministry. But it doesn't mean we don't challenge each other. I I remember we had a little fun with a little thing, and I want to sort of talk about our present-day Corbin. I I haven't heard any of you go around saying, well, that's Corbin, so I can't help. Our present day Corbin is the little phrase, Lord willing. When I first came here, I started, I, to me it's a favorite term, I love it, because it comes straight out of James, where he's talking about, you know, for you people that say you're going to go into a city and you're going to start a business and you're going to make a profit and do all this stuff, he says, like, knock it off. What you should be saying is, Lord willing, this is what we're going to do, but you're just a vapor, you don't control all these things. And, and God may not allow it to work out the way you think, so what, you've you got to get out of your arrogance and say, well, Lord willing, here's the plan, but I'm going to commit to it. But when I've mentioned that to people, I've had people say, no, 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 it, this isn't Lord willing, this is what we're actually going to do. And I looked down and went, what? And I kind of like, just a minute, explain that to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, why would you say that? Well, what they're used to is they're used to so many Christians who will say, hey, Lord willing, I'll be there, and then they bail because something better comes along that we have taught each other to say, Lord willing, is just a spiritualized excuse that I can make a commitment, but I can bail on it every time and say, well, Lord willing, it didn't work out. That's our present-day Corbin. And listen, if you've ever had to plan anything and get people to sign up and participate, you know exactly what I'm talking about. People will sign up and then it's kind of like it comes to the day of the event and it's like, oh, they're not coming, why? Well, because something better came up. And so they just bailed on their commitment and said, we're gonna go do this. And we've mastered that. Now, you know the way we solve that problem is you can't get people to make commitments for anything anymore. I'm not gonna sign up. I'll see how it goes, but I'm not going to commit to anything, and if, it, if I've got the time and it works out, then I'll go, but I'm not making any previous commitments because if something better comes along, now I'm trapped. Now I've got to make a decision about whether I'm going to follow through with this commitment, even if it doesn't seem like it's as much fun, or I'll go and play golf. Sorry, Joe, that's just me and you. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? And so we have to look at our own traditions in our own heart where we make excuses and and spiritualize them not to do what God's word says.
And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is God's word really the authority in our lives, or are we just pretending that it is? St. Augustine of Hippo made this comment. The faith will totter if the authority of the Holy Scriptures loses its hold on people. We must surrender ourselves to the authority of the Holy Scriptures for it can neither mislead nor be misled. And I want to finish just by asking the question is, do you really love your Bible and care about it? Do you spend time memorizing it? Do you spend time reflecting and meditating on the truths that are there or do you just kind of blast through a particular devotional for the morning and then bust off into the life and that's as good as it gets? Let me ask you this way. Since Jesus used the illustration of honoring your parents, husband and wife, parents, family stuff, let me ask you that. If, you're, if you have parents and you still live at home, are you committed to honoring them? Or have you at, done like some people say, my parents are just idiots and I'm not going to pay attention to them at all? I'll even carry it further since he's talking about family is that how many of you as men are working to, what I will say, fulfill your headship under Christ by loving her as Christ loved the church and nurturing and cherishing her the way she said because it's easy for us in the tradition of how dysfunctional our family can be that I'm not doing this anymore because my husband is a jerk and he's not loving me the way he wants to or my wife is clearly not caring about me, so that gives me the legitimate excuse not to care about her. Oftentimes, our families are the first place where we abandon the truth of God's word for our traditions because we grew up with really dysfunctional families and we don't know how else to operate. James Dobson made the comment, The parent must convince themselves that discipline is not something they do to a child, it is something they do for a child. And not only do I want to encourage our young people, all those who are even up here this morning to see the baptisms, to honor your parents, show them respect, listen to them and obey your parents because that's what God promises. But I want to challenge you as men and wives, husbands and parents, Don't get into the issue of creating a tradition. Do what I say, but don't live the way I'm living. Because there's nothing, there's no tradition that dishonors God and and creates more dysfunction in our families when we tell our kids they have to live a certain way or we don't tell them anything. We don't take the spiritual parenting part really seriously. And so we leave our kids to be victims of the culture for them to dictate whatever they want and we are sitting by as spectators while they reshape the mind of our kids into the dysfunction and the corruption of our culture. But what we're about to do tells me it doesn't have to be that way. I think we've got some great families who are doing the best they can to invest in their kids and teach them about the person of Jesus and the values of the scripture. Hang in there no matter how difficult it is. 
It's worth the effort. Father, thank you that we at times need to take a look at our own lives. Not only individually, but sometimes even as a family where we've developed a culture in our family that's actually not in line with your word. Sometimes it feels really negative because it's full of dysfunction and conflict and neither one of us are going to budge because we don't want to feel like we're giving in. We need to reassess our lives and align our hearts and our minds and our values with the truth of your word. And instead of making excuses not to obey your word, we need to be on point to live in obedience to your truth. Father, help us all to deal with our own traditions. Help us to live in a way that honors you, that our worship is something that's pleasing to you. And we give you thanks that your word and your presence in our life is sufficient to live differently than the world that we live in. And as we get a chance to celebrate that now, we just give you abundant thanks for all this in Christ's name. Amen.